Hi, I'm Roland Vive, and I wanted to thank you once again for joining our podcast. So today's part two of a topic that I talked about uh, in the earlier session. We, in the first session, we talked about, you know, what some of the tax consequences are upon death. And I did race through it. I recognize that there's lots of material to cover in that. Um, today, I'm going to talk about estate planning and some of the things that you might be able to do to minimize these tax costs. But again, you know, you can't really plan unless you know what you're planning for. So that was the whole purpose of the first session. So today we're going to talk more along the lines of, of estate planning and, and what it is and what can be done. So what is estate planning? It's a, it's a good question. Um, I'm kind of making up my own definition here. There's no real textbook definition that I came across that was, was good, but it's essentially a process. It's a multidisciplinary process. And the whole idea behind this process is try to ensure that as much of your estate ends up going where you want it to go. Okay. So if you, you know, anything, any planning you do, any exercises to make sure that the value of your assets at the time of death stay as intact as possible. And we know from dealing with the tax consequences that that's not entirely the case. Um, but not only that, we just also want to make sure that um, they, you know, not only you want to maintain as much as you, you can, um, you also want to make sure that it goes where you want it to go. And that's uh, equally important. I guess when I talk to clients about um, about estate planning, I kind of use the iceberg analogy. So, you know, picture an iceberg in the Arctic uh, breaking off and making its way down to uh, down the coast to Newfoundland. So the things, you know, if, if you think of your estate as being that iceberg, you can't park it exactly where you want. You can nudge it in the right direction. You can take steps to make sure that it more or less goes where you want it to go, um, but you'll never get it exactly where you want it to go. You can try, but you won't. Um, and the only other thing you know is that it's not gonna be as big when it finally gets there as it was when it broke off. Um, so if you kind of think of your estate in that way, what we're trying to do with planning is achieve both. We're trying to make sure that that iceberg, when it lands, is kind of where we want it to be, and there's as much of that iceberg left um, as, as possible. Um, so, so there you go. That, that's a, a visual to help, kind of help you understand what, what estate planning is. So as we get into this, the, the important takeaway here is that it is multidisciplinary and there's a lot of specialists involved in this. We've got lawyers, we've got accountants, we've got other advisors, uh, investment advisors, we have insurance specialists. So for you, when you're doing estate planning, it's, it's key to make sure that um, you don't let the, the specialist hijack the process, okay? It's the, the intent of an estate plan is to make sure that your testamentary wishes are observed. Um, you should try, my job as a tax specialist is to try and take your ideas, what you want to happen, your testamentary wishes, and for me to put as effective a tax wrapper around it as possible. But you should never let the specialist dictate the process. Um, and the expression you know we use is we should not let the tax tail wag the dog because we can come up with a perfectly ideal tax plan, but it may not actually achieve what you want. And it may end up having a lot more assets at the end of the day, but they might be in the wrong hands. So um, it's important to make sure that you understand that you're in control you and you you let the the advisors do their job but don't let them hijack the process in any way again the overriding concern here is that your testamentary wishes are observed okay so how do we how do we do estate planning well um the primary tool for this is is having a will um a will is you know a will deals with 
It names an executor. It names the person who is going to administer your estate. Uh, it gives them the power to make decisions. It gives them the power to administer it. Um, and it basically contains a set of instructions on, on how things are going to go. Um, the role of the executor is very important um, for anybody who's ever been an executor, even in a very simple estate. Um, you know that it's, it's a lot of work. There's a lot of responsibility. And if you're close to the deceased, not only is it a lot of work and responsibility, but can also be a mentally draining exercise. So not going to get into any kind of discussion about um, how to choose that, that executor. But other than to say it's a lot of work, um, in many cases, it's, a, it's an honor to be someone's executor. But, you know, don't underestimate the amount of work that it is. And it's an important decision to make. So we talked about, um, you know, how to save tax. Very briefly, we touched on that in the first session. And, you know, the, the primary tool here is, is the spousal rollover, which, again, um, allows your assets, if they're left directly to your spouse or to a trust for your spouse, will essentially provide a, a complete deferral of tax on anything that's left to your spouse. And now that tax burden becomes... Um, becomes theirs and will be triggered upon their death, not yours. Okay. Um, it's important to know that um, family law does factor into this. So if you choose not to leave anything to your surviving spouse, um, if you kind of family laws, you know, what happens upon divorce. So I'm not a, a family law expert by any means, but I can tell you that um, family law can override what you're saying in a will. So if you leave nothing to your spouse in your will, but your spouse was entitled to half your assets, um, I'm not saying that's the case, but if they were, because there was no prenuptial or any marriage contract, so it, you, know, you can't in death defeat the rights that your spouse would have had during his or her lifetime. So that's, that's important to know. Um, so why, do, why don't we just kind of everybody have a, a spells or rollover provision in their will? Again, that comes down to not letting the tax tail wag the dog. So again, that might be the most um, tax efficient way of doing things, um, but you know, this may not be your first marriage. So if you leave everything, this is your second marriage and you don't have any children from your second marriage, your children are from your first marriage, if you leave everything directly to your spouse, um, then you know you can't necessarily, without safeguards in, in your will, you can't necessarily um, ensure that upon your spouse's death, your second spouse's death, that all of your assets will go to your children. So that's why um, you know you you might want to leave some assets directly to your children, or uh, so some to your spouse, some to your children, um, if it's your second marriage or you might want to use trust provisions, as I talked about earlier, which could essentially say, I leave everything to my spouse um, in, in a trust, and upon his or her death, the residual assets that remain in the trust will pass to my children. So that kind of you know, ensures some possibility that ultimately your assets will go to your children. It's not a perfect solution, um, because essentially, you know, if you unless you appoint a trustee for that spousal trust, there's no reason that no, it, you know, it is entirely possible that your spouse could say, thank you for leaving it to a trust for me, but if I administer my own trust, then I'm just going to pull all of these assets in. So, um, you know, a spousal rollover, again, is a key component to the estate plan, but it's not for everyone, particularly if it's your second marriage. 
Um, and, and again, you know, that's something that you would dictate in your will. And you might say, you know, half of my estate goes to my surviving spouse and the other half goes to my children. Um, we talked about a trust for uh, a spouse. You could also leave things uh, in your will to your children in, in, in a trust as well. So uh, there's no tax angle to this. Um, when things go to your children, they pass at fair value. There's no deferral. But using trusts are uh, an excellent way to ensure that there, there are some safeguards against the spending of that money. So if you have um, children who are, you know, you, that are fairly young, when I say young, um, let's say someone in their, in their 20s um, who may inherit a fairly large sum of money, you might not want that to go directly to them. So we're starting to get outside of the tax planning part of it, but it's still important from an estate planning perspective because you suddenly don't want to have children who may not be mature enough or have the, the well, I'll use the word maturity. They don't have the maturity to handle that much money. So if you were to leave it to them, but by way of a trust and you appoint, you can appoint a separate trustee, there's, there's some safeguards around that, right? So they can't just necessarily pull all the money out and spend it on something which you might um, as the deceased might deem to be frivolous. So uh, by leaving money to children in, in, by way of a trust, there are certain safeguards that you could build into that and how that money is spent. And in terms of, you know, what the options are, there's limit, you know, there's limitless options. Um, you can simply say, and this is something you can be creative with, you can appoint someone to be that, that trustee so that, um, that they don't have unfettered access to the assets that are in the trust. Uh, and you can say, you know, and you can, you can make it anything you want, but you know, certain things come into play, like, you know, until you turn age 40, um, you only get certain income allocations from it. You can't collapse the entire assets that are left to you. Um, you can, um, you know, perhaps before the age of 40 in that example, you can use the money to buy a house, but not for, not to buy a boat. There's, there's, you know, you can't completely control the assets beyond the grave, but you can certainly add add some safeguards to it. So trusts, not necessarily a tax angle to them, but certainly um, more of a stewardship type of uh, function that they provide. Um, if you, you know, if you have estranged children, um, there's not nothing that says in your will that portion which will be left to your children should be equal. You can, um, you can discriminate against your children, perhaps if they're estranged or whatever number of family reasons. The, I guess what I could say here is that what you want to do is you you want to you want to minimize any exposure to litigation, and you, you've, one of the things you want to absolutely avoid is is you know having your your will contested. So if you've got three children, and you leave you know there's there's a child that you don't for reasons that are your own you don't want to leave anything to them. Um, you can certainly do that in a will. You can say you know the residue of my estate after payment of all liabilities and taxes will be divided equally between my two children and nothing to child number three. If you're going to do that, um, I suggest that you actually accompany that with uh, an explanatory letter where it's very clear that this was your intent, that there's no ambiguity. So if a claim by that child is brought before the courts and said my parents, my dad or my mom didn't leave anything to me, um, the, you know, the courts will not intercede if you've got you know, an explanatory letter there that says you, you're very clearly and very lucidly explaining exactly why you're not leaving anything to the child. You know, do you have to do that? No. Um, 
but if the goal here is to minimize any kind of uh, litigation, then you know those sorts of things are are important to do because it, it eliminates that ambiguity and nobody, no, no judge has to sit there and say, and try and interpret what you meant and whether or not you were of sound mind or body. So again, you have the ability to, to do that. Just make sure that, you know, you make, not only is it clear in the will, but it's also clear by way of explanatory letter. Um, you know, again, we're getting off topic, you know, not dealing necessarily with the tax side of things, because that's really dealt with in the, in the spells of rollover, um, but you, you know, other things creep up. So things you might not even think of. So take the family cottage, for example, right? Um, a lot of instances, you know, the cottage has been in the family for a long time. Um, and if you have, let's say three or four children, what do you do with the cottage, right? You, you want them to continue to enjoy it, right? You want it to be passed on in the family, but what if they don't use it equally, right? Not all the children, uh, some might be out of town. Um, there are operating costs associated with uh, with the cottage, property taxes, maintenance, upkeep, and those sorts of things. So if you've got children scattered all over the country, they might not use it equally. Um, and you know you want to you might get into arguments about who's going to pay for the maintenance. So just you know on the co family cottage, something that might be simple, it's still itself a complex issue. So again, there's no right or wrong way to deal with this. I think you just need to think about what you want to happen and then communicate that to the drafters of the will so that they can try and uh, incorporate your wishes into it. Things happen like, um, you know, you might allow the children to buy it. So if there's one child who really, really wants it, they may have to buy their interest off the other children, or you may insist on it remaining within the family and you might want to create a separate endowment, so to speak, where you can park, you know, let's say $100,000 if you have a big enough estate, park it and that $100,000 is invested and the money is used to the annual income is used to maintain the cottage and if there's extraordinary expenses you can encroach on the capital of it so um you know again the family cottage is a topic onto its own but it's an example of of just one more complexity that you have to deal with and think about when when you're drafting your will um you'll recall from the first session we talked about the deemed disposition and the impact that that has on your tax liability well, if you have private company shares, um, there is a potentially huge, um, very big tax liability that can be created from that. So when I say private company shares, you started a business, you incorporated it, um, it's a manufacturing company, and it's now worth several million dollars. Um, at the time of your death, if you've got, you know, if you're the sole shareholder, then that can create a fairly significant tax liability. Um, it may not be an operating company. It might be a holding company. So it used to be a business you carried on, but you've sold it. And now you've got investments in there. Um, and now, you know, you've got a million dollars of investments, stocks, bonds, cash, Bitcoin, whatever happens to be in your holding company and you pass away and it's worth a million dollars. Then, you know, absent any specific planning, like leaving it to a spousal trust, you're going to have a million dollar capital gain that's triggered on that. If you've got uh, an operating company and you've got other partners, then you know you likely have a shareholders agreement in place that deals with how that's going to happen, uh, and, and how your shares are going to be either sold or repurchased from from the other shareholders. So even you know even in the context of that shareholders agreement, you want to make sure that when you're negotiating that with your fellow shareholders, that 
um, the, what happens on your death is actually going to articulate well with your own estate plan and that they're not going to create more problems from the shareholders agreement that isn't consistent with what you want in your own estate. Double taxation uh, when it comes to private company shares is a huge issue. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, let's say you've got that holding company that is worth a million dollars, right? It used to be a business. Now you've got all stocks and bonds. It's worth a million dollars. You pass away, you have no spouse. So there's no spouse or rollover. And now you've got a million dollar capital gain that's triggered. So your estate pays tax on that. And now, you know, five years later, you your shares pass to your children and they pull that million dollars out um, that's in the company, then that's going to be a dividend. And that's going to create a second layer of tax on top of the million dollar capital gain that you you paid at the time of your death. So um, double taxation is, an, is a possibility. It's a very real possibility. Um, lots of solutions to deal with that, but they need to be considered uh, at the time of drafting your will. You want to avoid that double. Paying tax once is bad enough. Um, double taxation, is, it can be quite devastating. So um, again, highly technical areas of tax, but again, part of that whole need to, to plan proactively. So, um, so again, how do you how do you maximize the value of your estate? Well, I mean, an effective will, a tax effective will, is going to be certainly something that is that is key to the process. Tax rules change. Uh, your your own personal situation may change. Your net worth may increase significantly over the years. So, you know, a will is not a, a static tool. It is something that needs to be revisited. You don't necessarily have to revisit it every year, but it's not something you can park on a shelf and um, and leave for, for 20 years and expect it to be good. Tax rules change, the value of your estate changes. So those those are things which will require the will to be reviewed from, from time to time. So tax effective will is a good thing. A lot of people use insurance to cover the tax liability on death. Um, and insurance, um, you know, is, is definitely a solution. So essentially what that would involve is getting some form of insurance product, either a term policy or more permanent insurance that will pay out upon your death an amount that will cover the tax. Um, that becomes particularly important if you've got some assets that will trigger a lot of tax but aren't particularly liquid, right? So if you've got a lot of real estate, for example, um, without insurance, your estate might be forced uh, into liquidating some of those assets and you might be forcing your, your estate to sell into a downturn in the market. Whereas if you had insurance, you might be able to, to cover the cost of the tax and and dispose of the assets, particularly real estate, in an orderly fashion to make sure that the market is in, in the proper market. Um, insurance policies um, can be expensive if you've got, and it may not be a solution for everyone, right? If you're fairly, uh, if you're not in good health, you've had um, certain health concerns in the past, you may not be insurable, or um, the insurance costs may be quite onerous. Um, but certainly it is something to look at. It is something that you should consider, uh, particularly if you're younger. Um, and you might also consider it what we call the joint and last to die policy, which essentially means, um, you know, if you're leaving, if it's your plan to leave all of your assets to your spouse, then we don't necessarily have to insure your life. We would get a policy that would kick in when the last of the two spouses passes away. And that makes the policy a lot cheaper to underwrite and the cost of ensuring that liability might be significantly lower. But again, it would only apply if you're leaving everything to a spouse. 
where we can actually uh, do that joint and last to die type of uh, type of policy. Uh, and again, for business owners, um, you know, don't underestimate the the liability that can be created upon your death uh, from from owning those private company shares. So an important tool in that is is to do what we call estate freezes, where you know if you've got a company that is growing in value, we might actually you know do some reorganizations of your company to to kind of freeze the value of, of your shares at that point in time. So that if the company continues to get more and more valuable, that we're not creating a higher tax exposure for you. So estate freezes, you know, you can't, they're, they're a tool. You don't want to necessarily do it too late in the process and you don't necessarily want to do it too early in the process, but it is something that business owners should consider. Um, I talked a little bit about in the first session about probate fees or the estate administration tax um, that again, may not be as big a cost as the income tax per se, but it is in Ontario can be um, big enough number and it's not necessarily inconsequential. So um, one of the ways we can currently anyways, that we can avoid probate fees is to, to deal with multiple wills. Um, so you kind of break your estate into different bundles. If you know you have some investments or some money in the bank, that um, you'll have to provide a probated will to the financial institution to get that released, then you might have that in a separate will. And other assets, which aren't going to be subject to probate, which don't need to be uh, part of a certified will, like you know, your principal residence, like uh, shares of a private company, you might have those dealt with in a separate will. So now when your executors go to the bank, they will present a probated will, which only deals with a small subset of your assets. And therefore you've excluded the probate fees on the value of your house, the value of uh, your private company shares or any of these other assets that don't actually require probate because they're not held by a financial institution. Other ways to, to do this is to, uh, again, it works with an RSP. You might be able to directly designate a beneficiary in your RSP um, and, and have it bypass your estate so that it's not subject to, to probate. So an example might be, you know, I leave, um, you know, all of these assets to child number one I'll, and my RSP, I will leave directly to child number two. And that way the RSP assets aren't subject to probate, but you have to be really careful when you're doing this. So, uh, an example, let, let's use that example. Let's say, you know, you've got you're worth, your state is worth a million dollars. So we'll simplify things. You have half a million dollars of RSPs and you've got a house that's worth half a million dollars. So if you think you're being fair, um, you're going to leave your RSPs to one child and you're going to leave your house to the other child. And each ends up with half a million dollars. So life is good. They're, they're equalized. Well, that's not the case. One would think so, but the house doesn't trigger any tax. Whereas the RSPs, they do, because you're not leaving it to a spouse, they're deemed to be withdrawn. So um, depending on what tax rate you're in, the, you know, the, the, you might be at a 50% tax rate. So that RSP leaving to, to a child might trigger 250K worth of tax. The child who gets the, the, the RSPs gets the $500,000. They're not responsible for the tax. So now suddenly your state has this $250,000 tax liability and where's it going to come from? Well, your executors are going to be forced to sell the house. 
Um, and now suddenly, you know, the child who you thought was going to get the, ha the house worth half a million dollars doesn't because your executors need to come up with a quarter of a million dollars to pay the tax. And um, the residual is left to your child who would otherwise get the house and they, they don't get it. So, you know, that's an example where, again, this is like a massive flowchart here where you have to figure things out. Uh, you got to be three or four moves ahead in terms of understanding uh, what the tax consequences are. So, um, so much to talk about here. The, I guess the point is that unless you have a very, very simple estate, wills are not a commodity, right? You can't, unless things are exceedingly simple, you can't go to 1-800-GOT-WILLS and just simply say, you know, pull a will off the shelf because just the tax consequences, the family issues, everything is so complicated. There's definitely no one size fits all. And it's not a process that you can rush through, right? There are situations where, you know, if you don't have a will and you, you know, people come to me or they'll come to their advisory team and say, listen, I don't have a will. I'm getting on a plane with my, my spouse in two weeks and I don't have a will. So if something was to happen, I just, you know, I want to deal with it. So in those cases, you can kind of generally put a will together rel relatively quickly, just kind of a stopgap measure. But by and large, if there's any complexity to your estate, um, you need to really think this through. And it begins with you, right? Where, you know, where do you want your assets to go? How do you want them to get held? Uh, what kind of controls do you want to have on those? And it requires a lot of thinking. It's not something that can be rushed. And then you bring the advisory team in to kind of put the most tax effective wrapper around it. Um, but again, you know, it requires a lot of time. If you're dealing with private company shares, it might involve estate plans, estate freezing um, that require a lot of, lot of time and, and a lot of energy. So it is a process. It's an important process. And um, it doesn't take a whole lot of wealth before the complexity really kicks in and, uh, and becomes quite excessive. So I guess the, uh, the takeaway here is um, get good advice, manage the process yourself, make sure you're in a driver's seat so that your testamentary wishes are, are respected, um, but, but bring very knowledgeable professionals into the exercise so that um, that iceberg is as big as it can possibly be and is more or less where you want it to be at the end of the process. Thank you very much. <laughs>